The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. Thank you for listening. For more information on Story City, you can find us online at storycitychurch.com or on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Story City Church. Good morning, Story City Church. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Hey. John verses 15, 1 through 5. I am the true wine, and my father is the gardener. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes. And he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine. Neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produce much fruit because you can do nothing without me. I'm reading it in Farsi. Man taka hayiqi hastam va pedaram baghban ast. او هر شاخه‌ای را که میوه ندهد میبرد و شاخه‌هایی را که میوه میدهند اصلاح می‌کند تا میوه بیشتری بدهند به وسیله احکامی که به شما دادم خدا شما را اصلاح و پاک کرده است تا قویتر و مفیدتر باشید در من بمانید و بگذارید من هم در شما بمانم زیرا وقتی شاخه از درخت جدا شود دیگر نمیتواند میوه بدهد شما نیز جدا از من نمیتوانید بارور و مفید باشید بله من تاک هستم شما نیز شاخه های من هر که در من بماند و من نیز در او میوه فراوان میدهد چون جدا از من من هیچ کاری از شما ساخته نیست Thank you. Well, good morning Story City Church how are you guys doing this morning all right. You guys are awake this morning. That's awesome. Raha, thank you, brother. I appreciate that. I love hearing God's word in other languages. Farsi is not one we get to hear all the time, so I am super appreciative of that. Also, Pastor Andy, great job today, you and the team. Can we give them a round of applause for such a great job? <laughs> love that. Uh, we have so many talented people. If you haven't checked out their albums, uh, hit them up because many of them are on iTunes. You can download it. I'm trying to convince John Cornell to do an album release party here. Where did you go, John? But I know you're out there. We're going to get you to do your release party here at some point. It's going to be great. I can't wait. Uh, if you haven't checked out his stuff, check out his as well. Amen. Well, again, welcome. My name is Jared. I have the privilege of being one of your pastors here at Story City. I'm so excited this morning to welcome you guys to the family. But that can be kind of a weird statement. Why do we say family? Um, what do we mean by that? Well, because we believe that God has already done the work been righteous and good enough in and of himself that he suffered horrifically, died, overcame sin and death to rise again and to bring us to a place of relationship with him. But not just any relationship, a relationship where God our Father has adopted us and we become his royal beloved children. The Bible calls us co-heirs with Christ, sons and daughters of the living God as we love and serve Jesus. And so if God is our adopted father, then we who love and serve Jesus are brothers and sisters who make up the family of God. Amen? Amen. 
Hey, it's not wrong to talk in church, okay? There's no lightning bolt that comes down and gets you if you say amen. I don't mind it. I love it. So let's hear you guys respond back. It is all good. Let's try it again. Amen? Amen. Good. Amen is just a Christianese word for yeah. That's good. Let it be. That's okay. All right? Good stuff. For those of you who are still figuring out this whole Jesus thing, welcome. We want you to know that your story is welcome here. We're glad that you're here. We'd love for you just to take your time and and really get to know who Jesus is, and we want to love you well as a family. So welcome to the family as well. Can I share something really cool with you guys before we get started the message today? Um, We love city of Burbank. We love Los Angeles uh, in general, but the city of Burbank. Now, for those of you guys who know my story, I don't come from Los Angeles like most of you, right? There's a few of you that come from here. Um, I come from Northern California. I come from Southern California. The one thing Northern California and Southern California, like specifically San Diego, have in common is their hate for LA, right? So it is a miracle that God has not just brought me here, but helped me fall in love with this place to the, to the point that I'm excited to be here over those two places. Look, we came from Hawaii before that, so if God is moving me here, he either really hates me because I went from Hawaii to San Diego to here, or God understood exactly what needed to happen for me to to fall in love with this place, and I'm excited to be here. But that's not the good part. The good part is that God has brought other pastors here who love this city deeply and who are more about God's kingdom than their own kingdom. That is not always the case, sadly, with every church. And so God is doing something amazing that he has brought pastors like Nick Reed of City Light Church and Joseph Barclay of Radius Church. And these pastors and our church have committed to working together to figure out how we can best love and serve Burbank specifically and Los Angeles in general. And so that is a really, really cool thing. I'm going to talk to you more about that in the coming months about how our churches will be serving and working together. A lot of that involves church planting. But I just want you to know that God has already done something really cool in bringing pastors here who care, again, more about God's kingdom in this city than they do about their own kingdom and their own names. And so that is a good thing. Amen? All right. We got you this morning. You did it. I love it. It's like you've done this before. All right. I am excited to see God's church work together. In September, we're going to be kicking off our new preaching calendar year. And so we go September to August uh, in our preaching calendar year. And so we are... Um, we have been wrestling a lot about that. The elders and I have been praying, went away on retreat to figure out what God wanted to say to you guys this year, and we're pretty confident we have that. And so the remainder of August, we have some standalone messages. Super excited. Our founding pastor, Matt, will be here next week preaching, and so we're excited to have him back here. Yep, yep. Don't worry. It's, I don't take it personal. It's good. Clap it up. It's all. I am, I am honored to have him back, and he's going to be excited to be here, and so we're, we're good with that stuff. All right. We are going to be jumping into the the book of John today, chapter 15, verses 1 to 5. If you open up your Bible to about the middle, you'll find that's the Psalms. If you keep going to your right, you're going to get to what we call the New Testament or New Covenant, and that kicks off with the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The Bible's divided into Old Covenant or Old Testament and New Covenant, New Testament. Jesus has existed since before the world began. But the new covenant is when Jesus took on human nature in addition to his God nature. Jesus, again, has always existed. He takes on human nature, and that marks the beginning of the new covenant. And so if you're looking today, again, for the book of John, it'll be in the Gospels, the start of the new covenant, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you hit the book of Acts, you went too far. Now, specifically, verse 1 starts off describing Jesus as the new or as the true vine and the Father as the gardeners. There are some really important things for us to understand about this 
verse in particular. First, he starts off with this phrase, I am. Now, I am has these big connotations in Scripture because, bless you, because the Father, when he introduced himself to Abraham, calls himself, I'm sorry, to Moses. Moses says, who should I say is sending me to Pharaoh? Uh, What God is this? He says, I am who I am. You can't encompass me in a name. A name describes character. A name describes who we are. A name describes things about us. It's not just just Jared. Jared has meaning to it, but specifically with God, it describes a character to it. And so we're actually going to spend some time this year, this next year, going over the names of God, describing how God reveals himself to us and through those names. But this is important because Jesus makes this I am statement, and he, he's made a number of them in the book of John. And, and this one in particular would have been a very interesting one to the Jews because he claims to be the vine with the Father as the vine dresser. Now, in chapter 14, Jesus has said, if you've seen the Son, you've seen the Father, right? He's making himself equal to the Father. And in John 10, he has said, he and the Father are one. There's the people who say that Jesus never made a claim to divinity. Well, in the English translations, it's harder for us to see the direct implication of what he's saying. But when you go back to the connotation of the time, it was very clear that Jesus made those statements. In fact, at one point, uh, he's in Nazareth. He makes a statement so clearly they take him up the edge of the cliff and they're trying to throw him off before he slips away. Jesus made very clear, concise statements that he was divine. And so in claiming that the Father is a vine dresser and he is the vine, Jesus is making a claim to divinity. That would have been fully understood. But additionally, there was another claim that he was saying. The people of Israel would have been very familiar with this imagery of the vine because Israel itself is called a vine throughout Scripture. It, it talks about this over and over and over again. And so we see this, this imagery of the vine, Jesus isn't just claiming to be God, he's claiming to be the new Israel. One commentator writes, union with Jesus means participation in the new Israel, the people of God. Paul uses a similar metaphor in Romans eleven seventeen to 24. This theological notion has appeared elsewhere in John 10, 7, I'm the door of the sheep. That's an I am statement. And in 14, 6, I am the way. Attachment to Jesus is the only means of access into God's household. In other words, Jesus marks the beginning of the new Israel. Now, this makes sense in light of the Sermon on the Mount study where Jesus calls us to be citizens of this new kingdom. He says, God's kingdom is different, it's new, and I'm calling you into this new kingdom as sons and daughters of the living God. This is what it looks like, and so come be citizens, come be followers of me. I am the first of this kingdom, you can be next with me. And so this makes total sense if he is the new Israel. And this helps us to understand and interpret verse 2. John 15, 2 says, Every branch in me that does not produce fruit he removes, and he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. Now, this can be a complicated verse or a verse that can be taken out of context. And so I want us to help, I want us to spend a little time in this trying to understand what this means. Why? Because some people have tried to use this scripture to say that you can lose your salvation. They say, see, if you don't do good enough, then you can be removed from the vine. They say, because you can lose your salvation, you must do what you can to be connected daily to Jesus and make sure that you're still in good with him. Now, I can't more vehemently disagree 
with that statement. First, I believe it's clear that Scripture does not come from us or belong to us but the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. We didn't rescue ourselves, and so salvation does not belong to us. Anyone that that isn't saved by their effort, their own effort, then can't claim that salvation for theirs. The effort is Jesus' alone. And so the salvation comes from Jesus alone. The Bible says that we are now in Christ, that our righteousness is wrapped up in Him, that the Father sees the Son and that we are seen inside the Father. So here's my question. How do you lose something that was never in your possession? If our righteousness is wrapped up in him, that means that even our own salvation, our own righteousness isn't ours. The righteousness of Christ, the Bible talks about. And if it's the righteousness of Christ, then it's, not, it's nothing we hold on to. It's literally Jesus's, which should overwhelm us with a sense of, oh my God, how could he love me and choose me when there's no reason for him to except his great love? So then what is Jesus talking about? I believe Jesus is comparing and contrasting old Israel and new Israel. He's saying, you guys have tried this by the way of the law. You guys have tried this by the old covenant. It didn't work. And anybody that remains in the old covenant, anybody that is trying to make it happen that way is going to find out it doesn't work. You're not actually connected to Jesus in that way. We cannot find salvation as a part of the law, we can only find salvation in Jesus. Being a part of the chosen nation isn't enough to make us right before God anymore. There's still a belief. I have, I have Jewish friends who still believe that they doesn't matter how they live their life. They're good to go with God because of their nationality. Because they are Jewish, they're saying, I am good with God. I'm a chosen one. Being a part of the chosen nation isn't enough to make us right before God, only apprenticing Jesus is enough. And I think that's exactly what he's referring to in verse 3. John 15, 3 says, You are already clean because of what? Because of your good works? Because of what we've done? No, because of his word that he has spoken to us. But for those who are connected to or apprenticing Christ, he wants us to know that this is a process. He has made us clean or connected but he promises he's now going to prune. Ooh, I hate that word. (laughs) He's going to prune us, to cut us back, to to bring us in, to to cut off the parts of us that, that are not healthy and good, and some of the stuff that is good in order to make us better, to grow into the fruitful branches that he has designed us to be. Every branch that is connected to the vine Jesus is so loved and is so cared for by the Father that it must produce godly fruit. Any branch that does not produce that fruit is obviously not connected. It can't be because God only produces good fruit because God is good. And so if we are not connected, then we cannot produce good fruit. And if we're not producing good fruit, then what does it say about our connectedness? Eventually, there are branches that look like they're connected. There are branches that look like they are in, and eventually the fruit will prove whether they are connected or not. 
That's exactly what's meant by verses 6 to 8. But the crux or the central issue here is found in verses 4 to 5. And so I want to spend a couple minutes more in verses 4 to 5. Let's remind ourselves of those again. John 15, verses 4 to 5 say, Remain in me, and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do what without me? Nothing. Nothing. Well, I mean, surely something. Nothing. Nothing without me. Now, the key word here is the word remain. Now, other translations use the word abide. Who's heard that? Abide before. Abide. Yeah, you guys are the old school Christians. Okay. <laughs> I got you. <laughs> remain here is the word. Now, specifically, we are to remain or abide in Jesus, but what does that mean? Jesus is speaking to his disciples here just before he heads up the Mount of Olives. This is the Last Supper. He is in the upper room. This is Jesus' last conversation with the disciples where everything is kind of normal. This thing is all about to end. They're having the Passover festival. Jesus knows this is his last meal with the disciples, but they don't know that yet. He is about to be betrayed, led away in chains, humiliated, tortured, crucified. And before he appears to them again, and they see him as a resurrected Lord and Savior. And so this conversation then is really important. It's really important because Jesus is like summarizing, reiterating the things that he has been telling them over the last couple of years together. And he's trying to remind them of what is really important here. If we go back to the Sermon on the Mount, one of the things Jesus kept highlighting was how differently the kingdom of God works than the kingdoms that we create for ourselves, than the kingdoms that we had established through the old law, religious or otherwise. Now, if you remember our Minute to Mingle question today, what is heaven like? This really comes back to that. So think about all the things that heaven means, right? Give me a couple. What are some of the things that heaven looks like? New colors. New colors. Yeah, that's a, there's an artist. I love that. That's good. New colors. What else? <laughs> that is definitely not in heaven. <laughs> <laughs> Pure joy. That is good. Yeah. What did we have over here? A garden. A garden. Yes. Yes. What's that? The presence of God. Yeah. I think no pain, no suffering, no sickness, no loneliness. I imagine a heaven where I get to talk to my son. My son actually is able to physically speak. I can't wait for that day. No loneliness. No anxiety, no depression, no Kardashians on TV. It's amazing, right? <laughs> Can you picture yourself in the middle of this? Are you picturing yourself there? Now, I've asked this question in the church before, but let me ask you again. It's rhetorical. You don't have to answer it, but here is the question. Would you want heaven if Jesus wasn't there? Man, there's a part of me that's like, ooh, yeah, I want that. But story's right. It would not be heaven. It would not be those things. You see, in our kingdoms, our ways of doing things, we actually create a moral gospel, a moral way of living that has nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We end up working to be good people, moral people, but the Bible says we can't do anything to either improve our standing with God or to earn his love and approval. 
Either Jesus is the basis for our standing with the Father, or we are trying to stand on our own. Either Jesus is the basis for our standing with the Father, or we are trying to stand on your own. And so if you're taking notes today, this is the first observation for the day. Apart from Jesus, we have nothing. Apart from Jesus, we have nothing. Take a look again at verse 5, John 15, 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. In other words, as Pastor John Piper puts it, if we are not totally and completely united to Jesus as the most important thing, before and above everything else, not before and above some things, not before and above most things, but before and above everything else, including us, by the way, which we always like to say, but we have trouble living out. If we are not living so that Christ's life is flowing into us, then his words, his love, and his joy will be barren in us. They will not bear fruit. Why? Because a branch must be alive to produce fruit. There is no heaven without Jesus. In the same way, there is no godly fruit without Jesus either. So our focus is not on being good or doing good, but on how much we know and love Jesus. You might be thinking, yeah, yeah, I get all this, but here's the deal. So often we don't live this out. This is one of those cases where we we gloss over stuff in Scripture. We get this in our head. We don't always get this in our hearts. How do I mean? We literally have to stop trying to do and be good. If you're trying to be good, stop it. What is the pastor talking about? That we're supposed to be good people. Exactly. I'll get there. I promise. (laughs) Look, if you are struggling with pornography and you can't get free, stop trying to fix it. (gasps) What? (laughs) Spend time with Jesus. Get your eyes off yourself because what are we trying to say? I can fix this myself. I have enough in me to do this. We do not. So get our eyes on Jesus. Build a relationship with Jesus. There will be no room for other things. He will be our satisfaction. He will answer the questions that we are trying to answer for ourselves about our worth. Stop it. If you can't stop being angry or jealous or judging everyone, stop trying to fix yourself and spend time getting to know Jesus. Focus on the relationship with Jesus. Jesus is the one who changes our hearts. Jesus and the Holy Spirit bring about changes in our lives. We are simply partners in what he is already doing. But he must be the most important thing in our lives every single day in every single way. Now listen, when we try to do good things, even of our own effort and our own ability, even if they're good things, God literally has to come in and rip those things out of our lives. Why? Because anything done in our effort, even that we think is good, is never enough. Only the work of God in our lives is enough. Here's the problem. So often we might think, but God, this is the biggest issue in my life right now. Anger is the biggest issue in my life right now. And God says, that's not your issue. The issue that's causing your anger is that you don't believe me in my identity, in your identity, and so you're trying to act out in other ways, and people are not responding the way that you want, and this selfishness is creeping up in you, and it's causing you to act out in anger because you're not getting your expectations met, but the issue isn't your anger. The anger is about your identity in me, and I want to deal with your identity. We go, God, you're not listening to me. 
I'm getting mad at you. My anger is the biggest issue. God's like, son, calmate. I got you. Relax. It's going to be okay. Because God speaks Spanish too. And Spanglers. It's amazing. And so we literally have to come to this place where we're, we're not, we're literally not trying to do things in our own effort. And that seems so backwards from what we're told. Why? Because there is a multi-billion dollar self-help industry. And much of that is Christian. If our own efforts worked, people, we wouldn't need Jesus. You might be sitting here thinking, I've been following with Jesus my whole life. I'm not trying to be good. I get all this. But remember, this isn't just about being good. It's about our very existence. Not just our fruit depends on him, but our existence depends on him. There are no branches without a vine. Piper asks, is Jesus the most important thing to you in your thoughts, in your decision, in your existence, in your every area of life? Can I be honest? He is not in mine. I hate that about me. There are so many areas that he is not the most important thing in my thoughts and in my decisions and my existence in every area of my life. There are parts of me that I'm like, God, why haven't you fixed this yet? Which ironically is the exact same prayer my wife asks too. <laughs> why haven't you fixed him yet? Does that sound like you? Is that exactly how you talk? <laughs> I couldn't do it justice. If you're taking notes, this is the second observation for today. Second observation is this, abiding, that word abiding or remaining is not about working harder, but about surrendering to remain in Jesus. Abiding is not about working harder. If you've ever felt, especially those of you who are chill checking out this Jesus thing, there's times where we can literally just be like, I feel like I'm giving everything. It's just not enough. Like I'm trying really hard and I just, I just don't feel like I'm getting anywhere. That's okay. I need you to know that that's okay. Because we're not on our own timelines. We're not on our own path to being fixed. Jesus is bringing us along as he wants us in the right ways. And we can trust that even if we don't think we're his, he has got us. And so abiding or remaining in Jesus means we have to learn to surrender to Jesus' will and way instead of our own. And that is one of the hardest fights we will ever fight in our entire life. That's about Jesus truly being the most important thing to us in our thoughts, our decisions, every aspect of our lives. But the beauty of the gospel is that as we follow Jesus, we learn that we have been saved. We are being saved, and we will one day be ultimately and completely saved. That daily we are being shaped by the Spirit to be more like Jesus, and someday we will stand in the presence of the Father because of what Jesus has done, and we will be fully justified, fully sanctified, and able to stand there because of Jesus. That is the hope that we carry each and every day as we look at ourselves and go, God, where are you and why is nothing happening in me? This is not, this is not a small matter. This idea of surrendering is, is crazy when it really gets down to the practical application of it. In fact, I want to share a story with you that comes from Scripture about how crazy this actually is. And it comes from the book of 1 Samuel chapters 13 and 14. And it's, it's literally about two different approaches to Israel's survival. 
Israel is at this crossroads where they have this king named Saul. His son Jonathan, Jonathan is with him, and Saul has not consistently followed God. And God is about to rip the kingdom of Israel away from Saul because of his disobedience. But his son Jonathan still loves and serves the Lord. And so there's this crazy story about these two different approaches that is lived out by Saul and Jonathan. I'm going to paraphrase it, but I would encourage you to read it yourself. Again, it comes from 1 Samuel chapters 13 and 14. Now, it starts in a very difficult time of Israel's history. They've been having all of these conflicts with a nation called the Philistines. The Philistines have been harassing Israel. They've been kind of lording it over them to top it off. Israel uh, could not even make weapons of war at the time. The, uh, the uh, Philistines had come in and, and murdered every one of their blacksmiths, and so they couldn't even make weapons. They could only go to the Philistines, even to sharpen their own farming tools and, uh, and then the Philistines were charging him like four times the amount of doing it. So they were fleecing him while they were doing that, but ensuring that they didn't have a way to make weapons. And so it's under these conditions that Israel actually gathers for war. Now, there's this, uh, this fear that happens. And so the nation of Israel gets whittled down to about 600 people. So you have the king and his entourage, this massive army of 600 people standing on this hill. And the Philistines, they're, they're, the, the people of Israel are taking so much time. They're not seeking God. And so they're taking so much time to make this decision that the people of the Philistines are like, hey, they're going to gather for war. Let's gather. And so they get all their chariots out. They bring all their weapons of war. They got everything. You literally have 600 men on a hill with only two swords. The king and his son, Jonathan, are the only ones that have true weapons of war. The king is with the priests of Israel and the Ark of the Covenant, and they're sitting around, they're debating what to do, but no one is asking God. The Philistines take a key pass, and they're waiting for this ragtag group, these farmers with tools as weapons, to make a move. In the middle of this, Prince Jonathan sneaks off with his armor bearer, which I don't know what he's carrying since Jonathan had the only one sword, so... I'm not sure, but his bodyguard, armor bearer, heads out, and they go to the closest Philippine, uh, Philistine outpost. That's all good. I see myself in this. That's, that's the, there you go. That's the, you get what you get when you come here. <laughs> Philistines, you know. <laughs> so Jonathan has this conversation with this boy. He's like, hey, I got an idea. Here's what's going to happen. He says, God doesn't need a big army to defeat these Philistines. Philistines. God doesn't need a big army to defeat the people that don't believe in him. He doesn't need it. So we got God. What else do we really need? Let's go see God do something his amazing. Now his armor bearer, brave dude, is like, all right, I'm in, you. I'm in with you. Let's just go see what God is going to do. And so they sneak off, and they get to this Philistine outpost, and Jonathan reveals his plan. He says, first, we're going to give up the element of surprise and let them see us. Sounds like a wise plan so far. Second, we're going to get into a place where they have complete advantage over us. Sounds like a beautiful plan so far. And he says, if God wants us to have the victory, then we're going to, we're going to have them have us climb up the cliff to fight them at the top of the cliff. If he doesn't want us to fight him, they're going to tell us to stay there and they're going to come down to us. Now, basically, he's saying, again, hey, if, if we get to a place where there's absolutely zero tactical advantage, we're going to win. It's going to be awesome. God's got us. If we get any handed any tactical advantage at all, 
then, uh, then we know that it's our strength and, and we're going to take off because this is not how it's supposed to be. And so in a scene directly at a princess bride, they climb up to the top of the cliff. <laughs> they have this epic battle and the one sword defeats 20 men. Instantly, the whole garrison goes running and God initiates this incredible battle. But God doesn't just stop there. That's just one part of the battle. In the middle of that, God creates this massive earthquake. And so the people of the Philistines, the army, they start getting this huge panic. They actually start fighting each other and killing each other. And so this massive army just turns on itself because of what God did. The Bible says that they begin to melt away. Now the clamor gets so loud that this little ragtag group of, you know, uh, 598, because two of them are off fighting the Philistines, uh, gets what the heck is going on? And so at this point, the king finally thinks, I better ask God what to do. And so he tells the priest, hey, get the ark over here. Uh, we're going to ask God what he wants. And the, the din gets so loud and so crazy that the king actually says, okay, you know what? Stop it. I don't need to know what God wants anymore. Let's go to battle. And he finally rushes into battle after it's already been completely one. His inability to do things God's way is, again, eventually what led God to removing the kingdom from his family and giving it to his son Jonathan's best friend, King David. But what Jonathan knew and his father refused to see was what outside what God was doing. Outside of what God is doing, nothing we do works. Nothing we do lasts. It's only in what God does that we see victory. God has promised that as we, remind, we remain and abide in him, it's not just that we, sur that we survive, but that we thrive, that we bear much fruit. That is also a part of remaining in Jesus. Skip down and take a look at verse 11. Again, it says this, I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. When we have Jesus' joy, that joy is complete. Jesus is saying, I've given you all these instructions about what it means to be in the vine so that you would enjoy with my joy. My joy would be in you as your joy. And so when he says, abide and remain in me, he means keep on enjoying with his joy. Don't disconnect and start enjoying with our joy. You are in me, Jesus says, as source of all, and I am in you as all thirst and hunger for me. If you remember our look at the Sermon on the Mount, you remember Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5, verse 6, where he says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Jesus longs for us to live in the joy of his victory, his joy. You and I are in a constant battle every single day. What areas of our life do we need to surrender to him? What areas of our life are we trying to win the battles in our own strength? In what areas of our life are we trying to create our own source of joy? Do we believe that God is the true and better warrior, or are we? Is God the true and better king, or are we? God did the work so we could enjoy him and worship him and bring fame and credit to him, not to our name, to live in and with his joy, not because we're good, but because he is before we close this, I want to challenge you not just to listen to this and let it go, but wrestle with this in a real and practical way. Let the Holy Spirit show you what you need to do to surrender, what areas you need to surrender in, what you need to let go. And I'm going to pray for us in just a moment, but I'd like you to take a moment and ask God what that area is for you. Every one of us has them. If you don't hear today, I want you to keep praying until you do.
Be faithful. Keep asking God, God, what is it you want me to surrender to you? What area of my life am I trying to do this in my own will, my own strength, my own effort, my own wisdom? But remember, you're not in this alone. If you're struggling to figure this out, this is what family is for. We are family here. And so I want to encourage you to share this with your missional community group or those you're doing life with here in the church, your friends and family here. If you want somebody to be praying for you, we have an amazing prayer team. I get to be with them every Sunday morning and, and pray together. I love it. They are a, a, uh, a huge blessing to me personally, but they pray for you specifically. And so if you want them praying for you, one of the easiest ways to do it is just send a message to prayer at storycitychurch.com and they will stand beside you. You can let them know at the um, next steps table, hey, I've got a prayer request. They will pass it along to the prayer team as well. Connect with a staff member or elder. They love to pray for you. If you don't know where to start again, there's somebody at the next steps table to help you find the way. Don't do it alone. Now, speaking of not doing alone, we're about to take communion. And so I'm going to ask the elders and their wives to come up and uh, take some places. And so we're going to have a, a couple elder, or have an elder here and their wife, an elder here by this exit here, and then um, an elder and their wife back at the back door, uh, the back wall outside. And so, uh, elders, as you go ahead and make your way up now, I'd, I would appreciate that. As we take communion, I want you to know that they will be here to pray with you this morning. And so if you have something going on in your life that you would like prayer for, we would love for you to go ahead and find them. Perfect. Brad and Hannah, would you guys just take this spot right over here? That would be awesome for me. I appreciate you guys. Thank you. As they make their way up here, I want to prepare our hearts for communion. And communion is what Jesus and the disciples did right before he spoke the words that we studied today. And the bread is his body broken so that we might be made whole. The juice is his blood emptied out that we might be filled up with his righteousness. But since this is a 2,000-year-old tradition, this, this is about our connection to Jesus as apprentices to Jesus. It should be noted that this isn't for those of you who aren't apprenticing Jesus yet. And it's okay. Don't worry. No one's going to point it out. Just stay in your chair. If you would like to become an apprentice to Jesus, you want to surrender your life to him, then we would love for you to do that and then come forward and take communion. But if you're not there yet, it's okay. Just stay in your chair and relax a bit again. No one's going to notice. For the rest of us, I want you to take communion with your family. Come up, get the bread, get the juice, go back to your seats, pray with each other. Again, that doesn't have to be physical family. That can be community groups, can be your church family. But let's take the elements together. And so let me pray for us. God, we just come before you and thank you that you are so good. That it's your righteousness, it's your gifts to us that we get to enjoy, your joy that we get to live in, not because we're good, not because we've done enough, not because we are enough, but because we aren't. And that we get to live in that, God, it, it is an amazing gift from you. It's an overwhelming gift to sit in your grace and the benefits of your mercy. And so as we take communion this morning, we remember that you have done so much, that you have poured yourself out that we might be poured upon that you have emptied yourself that we might be filled up, that you have been wounded that we might be healed. And so we stand in that this morning. We acknowledge you. We praise you. We surrender to you.
by the power of the blood of Jesus. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.